having it to see and to do, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening. And uh, maybe some of you on Zoom can, can uh, uh, turn on their cameras as we start the lecture. Um, I'm very happy to introduce Reverend Ben Connolly, who comes to us tonight uh, from Minnesota, uh, and Ben's going to talk about his uh, his uh, newest book on the Yogacara tradition tonight. And um, he was ordained in the Katagiri lineage and practiced at the Minnesota Zen Center, among the other centers there, I'm sure. Uh, he's uh, uh, quite a scholar and has, has written uh, another book on uh, Yogacara, uh, Bashibandhu's uh, 30 verses. Uh, he brought us a book of um, Song of the Grassroot Hermitage by Shirto that we studied um, here, and uh, other book. Uh, I forget the name of your other book. Mindfulness and Intimacy. Mindfulness and Intimacy and Intimacy, a great book on relationships. So, uh, and he's a wonderful musician and composer, and is, uh, he's not going to sing the popular song tonight, but, uh, but uh, you'll have to take my word for it. So thank you very much, Ben, for Thank you. Thank you. So sweet to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me back, Patrick, and it's sweet to see some familiar faces and some people I have not met before. So we even have a dog. I'm always happy when there's a dog in the temple. Um, so yeah, it's just lovely to see this place well taken care of. Um, you know, the Dharma happens because people embody it. And so when I come here and see people embodying the practice, that makes me happy and grateful uh, because you doing this here is what makes it so it will be here. It also makes it so it's here already, which is pretty sweet in my opinion. So thank you very much for that. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to uh, leap into my uh, topic. So topic being Vasubandhu's Three Natures. Um, so I've been traveling around talking about this because I wrote this book with the very novel title, Vasubandhu's Three Natures. And um, yeah, I'm aware that there are probably people here who've studied a whole bunch of, they know Vasubandhu and they have an idea of the three natures. And then there are surprising people here who just have no idea what this could possibly refer to. So somehow I'll say some things and hopefully they will be beneficial. And some of them may kind of go flying, seem like they're way over your head, or maybe you're like, oh, I didn't do that a long time ago. But uh, hopefully you can take the parts that are meaningful to you and I'll do my best to say some things that can meet each person where they are. Mm. So, I will make pretty brief remarks about sort of the historical context. So Vasubandhu is a fourth or fifth century Indian Buddhist monk, monk who was very, very influential. So he created a very large body of literature that has been studied and been basic to many, many Buddhist traditions in Tibet and East Asia for 1500 years and are often sort of standard study texts within monastic 
um, contexts. And um, Vasubandhu <clears throat> uh, is considered, he is in all Chan and Zen lineages. So here, if you chant the ancestors, you get to the name Vasubandhu. That's just the Japanese pronunciation of Vasubandhu. He's considered one of the six ornaments of Tibetan Buddhism and one of the five great ancestors of the Jodo Shinshu tradition. And you can see the traces of his work. Even if you don't, you've never heard of Vasubandhu and you know nothing about what he wrote or was doing, uh, the way he um, helped to transform Buddhism is embodied uh, by people all over the world. So um, Vasubandhu's work uh, was he was part of a couple major Buddhist movements, but I tend to focus on his work in a Buddhist movement called Yogacara, which means yoga practice. And Yogacara is essentially about integrating early Buddhist psychology with the Mahayana emphasis on collective and universal liberation. So early Buddhism tended to focus on looking at the contents of what we would think of as the self, the things, you know, what's going on here? with the purpose of attaining nirvana so individual attainment of nirvana and then you know in the mahayana which is the style we're doing here in zen the emphasis is on every you know helping everyone be free from suffering um yogacara says these two um, methodologies are more powerful when they're integrated than when one is discarded or ignored so in particular because i'm a zen teacher and i mostly operate in zen context i emphasize bringing in early Buddhist psychology, mindfulness techniques, um, because I think they help. Uh, basically, uh, the way I was trained was informed by Yogacara and was really transformative for me and many people that I know. And so I'm like, well, this is pretty good. Um, you know, one simpler way to put why I think Yogacara is really timely is like, if you have an interest in being part of benefiting the world, and you would not like to be burned out, then Yogacara is, is a helpful framework because it's about taking care of the self as we engage in collective liberative action. So, uh, well, the other big reason why I'm often teaching Yogacara and focus a lot on it is because it forms the underpinning of Thich Nhat Hanh's movement for engaged Buddhism. So Thich Nhat Hanh clearly looked through many different Buddhist traditions to try and find which ones would be most effective at building a movement that was about being well, but also engaging in social change. And uh, he chose Yogacara distinctly and then used it to form the underpinning of his body of work. And he has great books on Yogacara, in particular, his book, Understanding Our Mind, which is a book on Vasubandhu's teachings, which is great. Anyway, so, Thich Nhat Hanh really deeply inspired me and inspires me today. And uh, so in some way, this for me is just about carrying his vision forward. <clears throat> so um, the subject today is the three natures, which is one of the main teachings of the Yogacara tradition. So the other one that's really well known is the idea of the Alaya Vijnana or the store consciousness, storehouse consciousness. I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about the three natures, which is the other kind of big um, section of teaching. And uh, three natures. So the idea is that it is useful to view each thing as having these three natures, which I will 
layout in a minute. So, or you could say it's useful to view everything as being of these three natures. Or another way to put it would be like, it's useful to view each thing as having these three characteristics. So sometimes instead of natures, they're called characteristics. So you just look at something and you're gonna go, oh, I'll think of it as having these one, two, three characteristics. So by everything, I mean everything you see, hear, smell, taste, think, feel with the body, any emotion or any other kind of mental phenomenon that you experience. So basically the whole, the whole deal. So the three natures are the imaginary nature, the dependent nature, and the complete realized nature. The imaginary nature of things is what you think they are. The dependent nature is that they appear the way they do dependent on other things. And the complete realized nature is that they're not what you think they are. Pretty simple, also completely baffling. If you understand what I just said, it should appear profoundly challenging because we're saying everything that you think is a thing is not what you think it is. So like myself is not what I think it is. This room is not what I think it is. My life is not what I think it is. Time isn't what I think it is. Space isn't what I think it is. Those things are all constructed by the patterns of consciousness, which are dependent on conditions. So uh, this is a profoundly challenging teaching that's very, very different than most people's modern materialist worldview. Um, it is very similar to other basic Mahayana teachings. So if any of you have chanted the Heart Sutra, the idea that everything is empty, but there is form, form is empty, is deeply related to the idea of three natures. Basically, the imaginary is like form and the complete realized nature is like emptiness. But I don't wanna dwell on that because you might just be like, I don't even know what that is. So now you're confusing me. But if you start to hear like, oh, that sounds just like this other thing I've been thinking about for 20 years, you may well be right. They're very similar. So the a very important thing to note though is that one of the main reasons the three natures arose as a body of teaching and that I carry it forward is that it is intended to make more explicit why, if everything is empty of separate lasting nature, what you do matters always. So what we'll find somewhat paradoxically is the idea that things are imaginary is there to demonstrate that what you do matters all the time and that you are always involved in the process of collectively creating what will be experienced by sentient beings. So hopefully I'll be able to um, unpack that a little bit as we go. But when we say things are imaginary, can't say it enough, we're not saying they don't matter. We're saying they really matter because that's what we've got. So I'm gonna read a little passage from the book. This book, Vasubandhu's Three Natures, is a new translation um, of Vasubandhu's treatise on three natures, which I did with my translation partner, Weijen Tang, who's a professor at Dharma Drum University in Taiwan. Uh, treatise on three natures is 38 short verses in Sanskrit. And then the book is predominantly commentary, which I wrote. So each chapter lays out one verse, and then I comment on the verse to kind of explicate what it's about. So I'm going to just do a short a little reading from the introduction. This is actually not a particularly short reading. <laughs> anyway, so here we go. 
Every aspect of what we would conventionally call experience is of these three natures. All sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, and our sense of being a self. For example, the cobalt blue car that I can see outside my window is of an imaginary nature. Whatever I'm experiencing it to be right now, a memory as I'm currently looking at letters on a screen, or now as I turn my head to look at it again, whatever I think it to be is a construction of habits of consciousness and imagination. I suspect it will take some time for you to consider this a reasonable or useful claim. And so dear reader, that's why I'm writing this book. That car is also of a dependent nature. Countless conditions that are not the car create the appearance of a car. Reflected sunlight, ocular nerves, supply chain software, oil refineries, the desire for wealth, and so on. This car is also of complete realized nature. It isn't what I think it is. Recognizing that things aren't what you think they are can radically disarm the patterns of your mind that cause you to suffer and cause suffering. For example, in order to see the car in my normal way, I am usually ignorant of or ignore a vast array of conditions on which the appearance of the car depends. Conditions that cause suffering in this time of climate crisis. These teachings are to help us move beyond this kind of ignorance. The so-called knowledge that white people are inherently superior to black people and the purported fact that race exists as a biological phenomenon were confirmed by 19th century scientific experiments, which have since been disproven. This caused and causes incalculable harm. This so-called knowledge is imaginary. It arises from conditions and its complete realized nature is that it is not real. And yet millions of people thought and still think it is true. Although many of us do not, the impacts of this view are pervasive. It affects where people live, the jobs we have, the wealth we inherit, our access to education, and so much more. They are alive in how I experience the world. This teaching is here so we may continually grow in our capacity to end and transform harmful patterns of which we are often unaware. By learning to see the three natures of the ideas that maintain harmful systems, we open the way for liberation. The three natures can be misapplied and easily misunderstood. Understanding the imaginary nature invites humility, not grandiosity. It affirms agency. It does not deny experiences. Understanding the dependent nature affirms kinship with all things. It does not deny differences or boundaries. Understanding the complete realized nature brings faith, compassion, and joy. It does not deny suffering. The three natures provide medicine for our ongoing daily sufferings, no matter how small. So to be clear, in the case of both examples I gave, although the car is imaginary, its impacts are vast. Likewise with race, which is not a real thing, which is well documented, the impacts are very large. So the basic analysis of the three natures to look at something, see it's not absolutely real in the way you think it is, but the way you're looking at it and the way other people look at it is important because we're imagining it that way. 
And then to realize that it's always part of a collective dependent system. So for example, with the car or almost any object, we tend to look at it from the lens of its utility to us. So we as conscious beings tend to see a world, whatever is happening in this moment is kind of compacted into like, what's, what's important to me? What do I like and how can I get some more of it? And what do I not like and how can I get rid of it? Which if is not evident is the basic dynamic that creates suffering in Buddhist thought, aversion and desire. So this is all driven by a basic ignorance, which is the third main karmic driver in Buddhism, which is believing that all this stuff that our mind has made up is absolutely real. So uh, things are, I'm gonna go through and, and address each nature individually now. So things are of imaginary nature, and this has many, many implications, or the claim is, I mean, I have no idea whether imaginary nature, I'm imagining this talk. So, but the claim is it's useful to view things as being of imaginary nature. And the implications of this are very large, so I can really only focus on a narrow slice here. But the principal one here is that the way we imagine things to be is what causes there to be suffering or not suffering. The society we live in is constructed by the way people have imagined the way the world is. We've made it this way. And we don't have to keep having it be the same way. So uh, basically, the underlying principle here is that the way we experience a moment, uh, which we call, we imagine the moment, those are identical things in this system, is created by patterns of mind. So any action with the body, including speech, or of thought, or of emotion, plants a seed that will produce a similar fruit at a later time. So another way to put this is any action of body, speech, and mind plants a seed that will produce a similar fruit in the future. And this moment is the fruit of seeds from the past. So for example, if you decide you wanna play piano and you start practicing scales, you do this thing with your body and you can kind of barely do it, and then the next time it's a little bit easier because you've planted some seeds. So the fruit of playing a scale manifests. And if anybody's ever learned a musical instrument, you know, if you do that a couple thousand times, pretty soon it sounds pretty flowing. So this is like an action that involves both body and mind and perception. Um, but also just like if every time you see a certain person, you go, why are you such a dunderhead and always doing stupid things and I don't like you and go away. Uh, you may notice that if you do that, the next time you see them, you're a little more likely to think, why are you such a dunderhead and not doing the things that I like? And why don't you just go away? We plant the seeds that create our relationships to things. And you may have had the experience of having a relationship like that with someone. And then you got some Zen training and you went, well, I'll do something instead. And you see that person and you pause and you go, oh, I feel kind of angry and frustrated. And then you go, oh, well, that's worth noticing. And then you look at the person and you go, well, can I just try and see what you're actually saying right now and hear it? Um, and maybe think about why the fact that a lot of conditions produce your way of being. So in that moment, instead of planting those seeds of aversion and judgment and alienation, you plant seeds of compassion because you've actually been present to your own feeling state. Plant seeds of 
um, just mindfulness in seeing the person, mindfulness of their body, uh, plant seeds of awareness of interdependence by thinking of the fact that their whole way of being comes from a vast array of conditions. So the point here is that you have power. The basic point of the things being of imaginary nature is to say that in every moment, whether you know it or not, you're planting seeds and actually every sentient being is always planting seeds that will create what will be experienced. So this is like, you know, Buddhism is a tradition that emphasizes the capacity of human beings to create liberation. And we're saying it's always true. The possibility is always there. Zen training is replete with this teaching. Why are there signs in temples reminding you to dedicate the merit of brushing your teeth to the liberation of all beings, to dedicate the washing of your face to freedom from suffering? To why so careful to remind us that each moment we're doing something that matters. And it's a place where we can plant seeds that are conducive to liberation. And you know, it's great. And for some of us who don't live in a monastery, we can come into this space and bring that focus in, and plant the seeds so that we can bring that into our workplaces and into our families and into our households. <clears throat> so, uh, yes, the basic idea of the imaginary nature is that you have power. So, Things are also, according to this teaching, of dependent nature. So uh, implications of this are very vast as well. One of the common things you'll see in Yogacara teachings is the idea of conceptualizing the dependent nature. So that's just thinking about how something depends on other things. If you've ever read any Thich Nhat Hanh, you've gotten a good dose of this. He uses this all the time. When you're drinking a cup of tea, just pause and think about uh, the whole water system that made there even be possible for it to be the water that the tea is in and the uh, labor of the people who planted the trees and the sun that fed the trees and the soil that was there all along without which there never would any people or any trees or any cultivation. And oh, you could just go on and on. You can go on and on. And a lot of people say, oh, I've heard that, you know, I, I got that down. Mm, I don't know. Uh, you know, when you chant before a meal in the Zen center, it's we reflect on the effort that brought us this food. That's like not just a joke. The idea is to really think about it. How amazing. Think, I mean, wow. Just to have a mouthful of food, it's incredible. So the practice of conceptualizing the interdependent is a great way to develop your sense of the depth of relationship and collectivity that characterizes uh, every moment. So a couple other things about the dependent nature. One, uh, it's very common for the practice of Zazen to help people to know the dependent nature because people just frequently report to me that if they practice Zazen and they do this very simple approach to practice where we're not trying to make something happen or get something or pick something out of the flux of experience and focus on it, the divisive or the divisive pattern that the mind normally generates softens. And so instead, we get a more holistic vision. 
and we feel less alienated. And people say, oh, it's, yeah, I don't know. I just, I started doing zazen and then I, I realized I'd just be sitting, you know, with my partner and I would just feel much better able to listen to them and open to them and realizing that it's not like, oh, how can I get them to do what I want them to do, but just hearing. So realizing the dependent nature is about realizing intimacy. It's about a softening of a, the apparent alienation that is here and of seeing the total relationality of every moment. <clears throat> so this usually feels really good to people. They just feel more open, more connected, less cut off. It's nice. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that often happens uh, though, or process by which people become aware of the dependent nature um, is often quite painful. Because if everything is interdependent, that means that nothing, no one, is ever separate from any suffering anywhere in the ultimate sense. And, you know, no one ever really takes that in. But at the same time, the process of realizing our interdependence often involves moments of, of real anguish. So, um, you know, Joanna Macy and her work promoting um, ecological thinking and, you know, stopping the destruction of our planet and our ecology. She focuses first on just being able to face how complex and painful and destructive the system we have is and letting in the pain that happens when that comes up. Because her argument is you cannot really begin to address it unless you let that process happen. You'll always be defended against your interdependence with that harmful system. So we're trying to hold the pain of it at bay. And so we, we don't fully act out of our sense of that relationship. And this is, you know, same thing in your family. You may have like some stuff in your family no one ever talks about that's super painful, right? And it's like, you know, amazing things can happen if like get some stuff gets aired out, people process the pain of that and you see that we're in this complex dependent system. And lastly, uh, an example I see oftentimes because I do a lot of anti-racism work, when you bring up the subject of race, it's very painful to see that you're inescapably part of a system that's so brutal and harmful. Uh, it's hard. It's particularly often really hard for, for white folks who have been gotten a lot of training to try and avoid facing that particular kind of pain. But the practice of just saying this isn't about something that happens in the South or that happens far away or is done by horrible people, but it's a system I cannot possibly be apart from. And to be able to really take that in, if it's painful, care for the pain itself, and then realize I'm more free at this point because I'm facing reality. And then the good news is everything's of imaginary nature, which means I can plant seeds for transformation. I have agency within this. People often feel they have no agency or capacity to do anything beneficial in the face of vast systemic harms. But that's never true according to Buddhist teacher, teaching. It's always possible to become more aware of how you're connected to it and then take those whatever those small steps are. Just little things we do that are different, that are not just part of going along with the flow. <clears throat> so I'm going to uh, I'm going to shift to talking about 
No, no, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read a little passage about, about this. Um, characteristically, Vasubandhu clearly defines the three natures as being distinct. Each one has its own characteristics and then says, oh, by the way, they're all identical and non-dual in classic Mahayana form. So as I read this passage, you might be like, which one are we talking about here? And you are correct. <clears throat> we don't passively receive the reality of the world through our senses and then respond to it. The world we experience is created. It is, as the text says, the active cognition of seer and seen. Our life is created by our karma and we create karma in every moment. We have the power to plant seeds that will create a better world. This body of teachings emphasizes the impact of each moment of intentionality. Our power lies in the quality of heart and mind we offer to the moment. Why do I think this worldview is more effective than materialism for healing our suffering and freeing us from collective modes of violence, oppression, and destruction? I will answer with some lines from a Chinese Chan nun named Bao Qi who wrote, the vastness of karmic consciousness is hard to prove, but when Mr. Zhang drinks, then Mr. Li gets drunk. I should say at this point that I am a recovering addict and alcoholic who's been sober for about 25 years. Sometimes I get a call or I see an obituary telling me that another friend of mine has died from addiction. I've lost a dozen friends so far, and I can never know what part my enabling of their intoxication played or the impact their deaths and addictions will have on future generations of their families. The web is too complex to map with materialist tools. I can never know the impact of the thousands of hours I've spent working with addicts in recovery either. I have witnessed the awakening of so much freedom. One of Bao Qi's inspirations, the great Chan nun Miaozong wrote, when outside the diamond door he glowered, inside the stable, the wooden horse's face turned red. In the verse above, there is no physical connection between the man's glower and the wooden horse's face. And yet there is a reaction and connection. We cannot ultimately know when or where the results of any karmic seed will manifest, but manifest they will. Miaozong wrote her lines in a Chan compilation she created in the 12th century. But could she have known that in the 17th century, Bauchi and her Dharma sister Zukui, looking to revive the rarely recorded teachings of a female master of Chan, would pull them from obscurity and write their own commentaries? Or that Beata Grant in the 21st century would again revive them in English? I believe that buying a chunk of an animal killed thousands of miles away, or offering a caring smile for a person on the street, as well as each tiny moment of anxiety, desire, or compassion you cultivate has an impact on every living being. I can't measure it. Miaozong says the wooden horse's face turns red. A wooden horse is a classic Buddhist metaphor for something that has no reality or causal agency, like the horns of a rabbit, a wooden man, or a stone woman. Miaozong invites us into a worldview of mystery where we don't know or see what is ultimately real, but where an angry glare causes suffering we can't calculate, where a smile has radiance beyond the limits of our knowing, 
where our actions really matter. All of this isn't real, but it's as real as it gets. So everything is of imaginary nature and dependent nature and complete realized nature. Uh, this moment is complete realization, according to this teaching. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, complete as in whole, unbroken, untrammeled, realized, referring to realization or awakening or enlightenment. So uh, in simple terms, you could say what makes a Buddha a Buddha is they don't suffer. They don't cause suffering and they see what is real. And the seeing of what is real is what causes them to not suffer because they see clearly and it makes it so they don't cause suffering because they see clearly what it would be beneficial to do. So I don't know any Buddhas personally that I know of, except all you guys, you're looking pretty good to me. Um, so this is a little bit theoretical, maybe, but this is basic Buddhist philosophy. So the idea of the complete realized nature is things are not what you think they are. So they're not things. It's mind that makes a world of objects which can either impinge on us, that can be acquired or gotten rid of. And nothing is ever actually like that. It's just flux. So what a Buddha sees is that things aren't what they think they are. They're not things. And hence, there's no suffering. And there's clarity about the depth of relationship, which is totality. That's all there is, is relationship. So mm, let's see, we say this. Vasubandhu at the end of the 30 verses on consciousness only says, the last verse says, this is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. So when he says that, it's a text that you are meant to chant. So I'm making the gesture for this realm, but you could make that gesture. And he would be saying, this is the inconceivable, wholesome, unstained, constant realm. This is the blissful body of liberation, the Dharma body of the great sage. So the, the argument is what a Buddha sees is that that is true but that is already true for you right now. Because things aren't what you think they are. Pretty simple, except it doesn't seem that way. Now, Hako and Zenji at the end of Song of Zazen paraphrases in his last line of that text, paraphrases Vasubandhu, he says, this very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. Dogen Zenji, when he, wants to explain why and how to do Zazen at the beginning of the universal recommendation for Zazen, the Fukan Zazengi says, the way is originally perfect and all pervading. How could it be contingent on practice and realization? The true vehicle is self-sufficient. What need is there for special effort? The whole body is free from dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from this very place. What is the use of traveling around to practice? His teaching on Zazen and on the root of the practice is identical to this teaching here, which is saying everything is already of complete realized nature, which is why you should act like a Buddha, because you already are one. Why don't you just act like it? What do Buddhas do? They come into the Zendo and they look really beautiful, like you. <clears throat> or you can do it in your house too, it's all cool. 
But you know, the Zendo is really nice, by the way. If you live nearby, come on over. It's a beautiful space. I'm going to read two short passages on this subject of the complete realized nature of what is already here to conclude this talk. And then I'll make some room for other voices. <clears throat> From a chapter entitled Already Buddha. When I came to Buddhist practice, I was seeking something else. I sought an escape from the anguish I experienced. My therapist told me it was the anguish of trauma from the past reproducing itself. My psychiatrist told me my brain didn't process serotonin properly. My addiction recovery friends called it defects of character, self-will run riot. My Buddhist studies called it afflictive karma. All these ways of looking at it have their utility and I am deeply grateful for all who have supported me in finding the wondrous, joyful existence of today. When we suffer, when we see the suffering of others, it is right to seek wellness, to seek something else. However, it is also true that there is not something else, that you and I are not and cannot be broken. For if there is brokenness, there must be a wholeness that is elsewhere. This is a duality. And duality is just a habit of mind. So that's on this very body is the Buddha. And on where we're at. Recently, I heard a talk by a Dakota elder named Bob Klanderud. He spoke of the total kinship of all life. He told us that the confluence of the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers near my home on US occupied Dakota land is called Bedote. For the Dakota, Bedote is the origin of the universe, the land of Genesis. In his words, it is Eden. He asked us, now that you know you live in Eden, how will you choose to live? So uh, thank you for your attention. Uh, yes, I went a little long, but there's room for voices. Any kind of reflections or questions are welcome uh, that you may have. Any flavor? Yeah. That was really, really interesting. And I kind of go into a lot of different Buddhist practices as well as the yoga practices. So I kind of understand that confluence of like how they all kind of intersect and where they're coming together. And um, I was, there was a nature summit that just started yesterday and the, one of the first speakers, and I can't remember his name, unfortunately, but he was talking about a term that he had coined, which was intra-being, which is sort of like that real, like, I think what he was trying to get at was that there was this, like, kind of what you were talking about, this, this, um, the complete non-duality of, like, everything being interconnected. There was no, there's actually an illusion of separation that sort of, that, that we create. And um, so, but one of the things, too, that I found in these different practices, they all kind of come back 
and he kind of mentioned it, and, and I wish I could remember his name, it's in his talk, um, but it, it comes up in all different places that there is a basic fundamental quality of all things in the universe and in us is love. Yeah, that is very concordant with this teaching because the idea is with the complete realized nature, uh, it's not love like a feeling. So, or, or as Dr. King would say when he was talking about love, I'm not talking about some emotional bosh. I love emotional bosh, so I got no problem with it. But the kind of love that is talked about here is one where basically there's something happens, some energy happens with the human body. And when that human body's uh, view of the world is informed by how deeply things are interconnected, it will naturally move to do something beneficial in the most broad speaking way. And so that sounds like love to me. So yes, I think uh, that's a deeply, uh, a viewpoint that deeply accords with this body of teaching. Yeah, maybe that's the innate nature of all things, not just humans, but you know, beyond the love too. <clears throat> yeah, Yogacara only talks about consciousness. Right. So it doesn't, it actually denies that there are um, actual material objects, mostly because you can't know there are. So it comes from the perspective that the only addresses the condition of sentient beings, which is different. So that's a difference from some other systems, especially yogic system. Um, but, uh, you know, there's common themes, but they're not identical. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, there's no, it's not like there's a subject that loves things because the subject is not real. So there's only the flow of energy. So yeah, is that everything having the nature of love? Yes. But also it's that only occurs, this only addresses the experience of sentient beings because that's kind of, it suggests we can't know anything outside of that. So we're not making jumps to things we can't actually know is the claim of the tradition. I guess kind of philosophical though. Anyway, other people, uh, other thoughts or questions? Can people on, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I really, thank you so much. I really appreciate um, all of your references to the environmental crisis and Joanna Macy's work and indigenous culture and how you're weaving that all together. Um, I guess I, I was wondering if you had any specific examples of how you, how you have used this practice to help for example, environmental activists face their burnout or face their overwhelm with the vastness of the crisis we're facing. You know, um, you kind of mentioned at the, at, at the beginning, I didn't know if you had any, any kind of particular ways you work with people on that. Yeah, uh, you know, there's, there's, it's basically like lots and lots of Buddhist practices I think are helpful. So it's a really big question. And I think maybe I'll answer with a story um, but this is based on a couple things. By realizing things are of imaginary nature, I can just remember, no matter how wound up I get about this, I'm wrong. You know what I mean? I don't know the, I don't know what will happen. And my view of the world is not the truth. So I can make my best effort within this motion, mo moment of relationship to make a choice. But that disarms, you know, a lot of the anguish for me. It's just like, it's just enough to make a choice. The other thing is because things are of complete realized nature, there are no objects. So once we, you really take that in, you're free 
of being upset when your objective is not realized because you always knew it wasn't real in the first place. So here's the, the story I'll tell about this. I was part of a major um, water protector movement in northern Minnesota to stop the Line 3 pipeline from being built that was led by a bunch of indigenous, predominantly Anishinaabe women. And it was a powerful movement and uh, it involved major nonviolent direct actions in which uh, many, many people were arrested. And there was a lot of suffering, but there was a lot of taking time to sit in circles and care for the well being of the people in the movement, and a lot of listening to people, and a lot of caring for the trees we were moving amongst. And so the culture was one of planting seeds of radical nonviolence, of community care, of caring for our well being as we went. Now, having said that, there was there's plenty of burnout in the movement, but relatively speaking, it was very beautiful. And so I put a lot of energy into joining and supporting that movement in order to plant seeds that I thought were beneficial, seeds of nonviolence, of community care, of centering the voices of indigenous women to move people from the margin to the center. Mm -hmm. So all these kind of things. The pipeline got built and it's running uh, tar sands oil into Minnesota right now. So the thing is, I never thought it would get stopped. And some of my friends in the movement are mad when I say that, but I'm just like, I never believed we had control over the situation. I just believed it was worth being part of a movement where all the cultural elements were there that are the seeds I wanna see in the world. And so it's also good to be discerning about what movement to be in that will actually like make, you know, what we appear to be real outcomes. That's important too. Um, but in that sense, for me, you know, I'm not happy that the pipeline is running, but it's like, you know, the system is, is huge. It's of dependent nature. So I don't have to get wrapped up about the small things. I can just keep going. Yeah. yeah. So something like that. It's a beautiful example of Bodhisattva vow. Yeah. 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 There's lots of I ways to do it. Seeds. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and I realize uh, it has come past the time when I'm to be talking here. So I think maybe we should wrap up. I'm so appreciative of the time to be with you. Um, I see a heart on the screen. I have a heart, look, it's here. <laughs> That's my heart to you. Uh, anyway, it's, it's been really nice and uh, I'll be hanging out in here. We can have some tea if you're in the, in the space. And if you're online, uh, great to be with you, take care. Things are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. This way is unsurpassable. I vow to become beings are numberless. I vow to save them. The illusions are inexhaustible.